If you are uh, watching us on our uh, Facebook page or if you are watching us on our YouTube channel, so great to have you here. Uh, we are beginning a new series here at Vineyard Church of Greater Portland. We are beginning a, a new series called Christ Plus, and it is really going to be a study in the book of Galatians. We're excited about this. And the reason why we're calling it Christ Plus is because uh, in many ways, the Galatians were beginning to believe in a different gospel. They were beginning to believe in a counterfeit gospel. And it was a gospel that would add on things to Christ as a way of being justified, as a way of being saved, as a way of having uh, a spiritual relationship with Christ. It was all about adding things to him, adding things to his work, and not resting in the sufficiency of Christ and all that he's done on our behalf in order to receive all of the riches, uh, all of the treasure that is hidden in Christ for all that who believe in him and put their faith and trust in him. And so for the Galatians, they began to be um, dissuaded and actually persuaded to believe in a different gospel, to believe in a counterfeit gospel, to add unto Christ's work other things that would draw them into a greater sense of spirituality um, with Christ. And so they were believing in another gospel, and that is a gospel that cannot save. And so Paul writes this letter primarily to bring a correction to the Galatian church with regards to what they had received beginning and then what they were um, what they were deserting, which was the true gospel, and what they were receiving in place of that, which was a different gospel. So uh, we're going to try to spend a moment here to give us some context and ask a couple questions and answer a couple questions uh, about uh, this book of Galatians. And not only that, the, the churches of Galatia. Um, this book really, as the Greek puts it, is titled Pro Galatis, which means to the Galatians. And this uh, letter was penned by Paul probably around AD 49. And it happened to take place roughly, obviously, 20 years after uh, Christ had, uh, had risen. And this, uh, these churches were in an area called Galatia. And this area of Galatia around 25, uh, I would say 25 AD or so, it was um, taken over and was considered uh, territory of the Roman government. So basically uh, at this time, it was around 49 AD that Paul writes this letter to the Galatians and he's writing it to a group of churches. He's not just writing it to one church. Most of his letters, in fact, all of his letters that were um, written to churches were typically written to a specific church, but this letter was written to a group of churches and most likely these groups of churches uh, obviously, we're in this region called Galatia, uh, and these churches were in cities of Pisidian, uh, of Antioch, of Iconium, of Lystra, and of Derby. And so these were all churches that Paul had planted on his various missionary journeys. And so uh, the reason why Paul writes this letter is so that they would understand what it is that Paul had given them. This letter was in many ways a response, written in a response to what Paul was hearing about what the Galatian churches had begun to believe. 
the churches were in many ways being overrun by false teachings by those who were bringing a different gospel, those who were bringing a counterfeit gospel, those who were adding on to the sufficiency of Christ in his work that was sufficient for our salvation, our regeneration, our justification, our sanctification, that this is all we need. And these teachers were coming in and they were adding things on as heavy burdens to these churches. And so Paul writes this letter, and he writes it in response to what he's hearing. These guys were falling victim to, in a sense, to a distorted gospel of Christ. And it was built upon fraudulent teachings that did not present nor proclaim the simplicity of the gospel. It was, in fact, a counterfeit message. These new teachings said that you were that you were saved by faith plus performance. That you were saved by faith plus performance. It was it was Christ's work plus your work that secured your right standing before God. It was Christ's work plus your performance that that merited favor with God. It was Christ's work plus your work that caused you to mature in in God and to ascend to a greater uh, knowing of God. The sufficiency and centrality of Christ crucified to be saved was, in fact, rejected. The liberty of knowing by faith that our justification was accomplished through his death was all but abandoned. And a heavy yoke of accomplishments and performances and works was placed upon the necks and the shoulders of these people in Galatia. And so Paul writes this letter to the churches in Galatia, and he writes it uh, with such force, uh, seeking to dismantle and to utterly destroy these burdens that were caused by these new teachings uh, that the church had never heard before. And so I want to read uh, this, this passage. Uh, we're going to start, obviously, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm going to read to verse 10, and then we're going to kind of break this thing down. We're going to chop it up into little bite-sized chunks, and we're going to look at each piece, and we're going to break it down to get a sense of what Paul is trying to say here uh, in his beginning part of the, of the letter to the church. So I want to read uh, this for, for us first, and then we will uh, go into uh, the different parts and, and, and understand exactly what it is that Paul is trying to say here. So verse 1 begins like this, Paul, an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, 
If anyone is preaching to you a, go a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking the approval of man or of God. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so I want to begin here in verse 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Paul, I am an apostle, not from men, not through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So straight out of the gate, Paul carefully crafts these words. He demonstrate this sense, uh, this unequivocation, uh, exactly where it is that his authority has, has come from. He does not mince words in these texts. He does not mince words. He does not, uh, he, he does not, he substantiates the calling, uh, the source of his calling, his ministry, and his qualifications. And Paul makes it abundantly clear that his apostleship was not established in the authority of any man. It was, it was not bestowed upon him by the laying on of hands by men. His apostolic calling was not the result of any man-contrived commissioning or an ordination. It was not made, uh, it was not given to him through a popularity poll, an opinion poll, a survey, or a vote. And therefore, the wisdom in the revelation that Paul is dispensing to the Galatians is not from men either. His apostleship was not from men, and, and nor was this message that he was given. It is not rooted in the counsel of men, nor in the wisdom of the world, nor by the teachings of the finest schools and academies, but through Christ himself. And Paul intends to make really clear the strict qualifications of an apostle and the rigid requirements that are necessary to define what an apostle is. Paul justifies the fullness of his apostolic rank in Christ's post-resurrection appearance to him. He said, in order for apostles to be apostles, in order for you to be an apostle in the sense that I am an apostle, you must have seen Christ face to face. You must have been personally commissioned by him in order to be given the office of apostle. Listen to what he says in Acts chapter 22, 14 to 16. After Paul uh, is, is confronted with and sees the risen Christ face to face, it is this personal commissioning that we find as the bedrock and the foundation of an apostle. It is the seeing and the, uh, and the uh, knowing and the witnessing of the resurrected Christ. The apostles uh, that, were, that, that, uh, that walked with Christ, they were considered apostles and commissioned into apostleship because they had walked with him and were with him and saw him and heard him. And, and Paul, too, in, in, a, in a different sense, uh, has an encounter with a resurrected Christ and Christ commissions him personally and this is the standard for apostles as we see uh, in Acts chapter 22 14 to 16 Ananias says this of Paul after Paul receives his sight after Ananias prays for him he says the God of our fathers appointed you Paul to know his will 
to see the righteous one, to see him, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 8. He says that he was the last of the apostles, the last of the apostles, the last of all that Christ had appeared to. And he said he was the least of the apostles because he was the last one that Christ had appeared to. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1, Paul says this, defending his rights and defending his apostleship. He says, am I not free? I have surrendered my rights, but am I not free to surrender my rights? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship? So here we see this inextricable link between seeing the risen Christ and the apostleship that has been given to him by the commissioning of Christ personally. And this apostleship we know from Ephesians chapter 2 verses 20 uh, is really responsible along with the prophets for the foundational work of the church. It is this idea that the apostles and the prophets come and founded the church. They, they built the foundation of the church with, the, with Christ being the cornerstone. And from that point on, the church is being built on that foundation. And so there is no need to lay another foundation, and nor are we laying a foundation at this point as the church, but we are building on that foundation that was established by the apostles. And so Paul makes it clear the, the, the qualifications and, and all that is required for an apostleship in the Lord Jesus Christ. He then sets his sights on the true gospel. He, he comes down here in verse 3 and sets his sights squarely on the source of his apostleship. It is the source in which it is maintained and established. This apostleship is of divine source from Christ himself. And if the Galatians were at all confused about who this Jesus Christ was, Paul made it clear to them, for any who were confused about who they had heard about and who they had received, it was Paul who supplied the necessary clarification to the Gentiles or to the Galatians in verse 3 to 5. We read this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom the glory be forever and ever. In as many of his letters, Paul presents the gospel in no uncertain terms. He makes it clear what the gospel is. He makes it clear as to why Jesus came. He came for the forgiveness of our sin. And he came to, to uh, rescue us from the domain of sin and the domain of darkness, from the, from the power of sin, from the curse of the law. He comes and rescues us from that. He comes and dies for us and gives himself for us for our sin to be forgiven and for us to be reconciled to God. And so the gospel is brought to a remembrance in the most simple and complete and concrete way for these Galatians to understand that Paul's vested authority came from the one who gave himself as a voluntary sacrifice to God so that whoever should believe would receive the forgiveness 
of sins. It is by this one act that we are delivered, we are rescued, we are torn away from the dominion of darkness. We are transferred from dark to light. We are delivered into truth from error. We are rescued and delivered into obedience from complete rebellion. And so Paul is laying out this gospel it's as if he's setting the standard, it's as if he's reminding them of the, the message that they had received, that it is all in Christ, that it is all due to Christ, that their salvation is, 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 can only be given to them. Their salvation is only accomplished in the work of Christ as he comes and gives himself for his church. And so it was necessary for Paul to bring this remembrance to the Galatians that they had first heard and received and believed. And he's resolute in exalting the uncompromising truth of the gospel as the standard bearer for which all things were to be measured. It is this gospel that, that, that sits above everything else. It is the gospel of Christ that sits above everything else. It becomes the plumb line. It becomes the measuring stick for any other truth that is spoken that we hear. Paul sets up the gospel as the supreme standard of truth in order to tear down and demolish every false teaching that had crept into the church, every error that had come in unexpectedly, unsuspectingly, and unannounced. So he starts with the true gospel. He first talks about his apostolic authority, where it comes from, and then he talks about who it comes from and what he's come and what he has done. And he comes to a very simple and concrete explanation of the gospel that which they received. And he lays this all out so that he can tear down every other false teaching and error that is there to try and dissuade them, to pull them away, to draw them away from the truth of Christ, to draw them out of the grace of Christ and back into their own works and their own performance as a way and a means to God. Then Paul transitions here to uh, the different gospel and the distorted gospel that they were receiving. Typically at this point, Paul, after his initial um, opening greeting, uh, he gives a, a, a thanksgiving, a word of thanksgiving, thanking the church uh, for all that they are and all that they've done and all that they're doing they're for their support of Paul. Uh, typically, he moves right into that Thanksgiving part, and then he, he, he goes into the body of his letter, but, but not here. After that first greeting and after substantiating his apostleship, Paul has no time for thanks. He has no time for formalities. He has no time to waste. In fact, there is nothing really to be thankful for with the, these churches in Galatia. So Paul comes right into his argument. He comes right into uh, his reason for the letter. He says this in verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I'm so astonished that you're already turning from what I had given you. This word astonished 
uh, in the Greek means to be amazed or to be marveled or to be stunned or to be confounded. Uh, Paul, in a sense, is saying, I'm, I'm confounded, I'm amazed at how quickly you have deserted Christ and how speedily, and not only that, how easily you have been, you have been duped, you have been uh, led away. You have been led away from the freedom that is in Christ back into the bondage of slavery, of performance, and of spiritual work. I'm amazed. I'm amazed at how easily it is. It's the sense that they are so open-minded to any teaching that comes down the pike. It's this sense that they, uh, their minds are like an open door. You know, God says about his word in Psalm 19, he says this about his word. He said, his word is sure, and it, and it, um, it converts the uh, simple to the wise. He says he, it makes the simple wise. In other words, that, that idea of simple means this sense of naivety, that they were willing to believe anything. And so it is with these Galatians, that they are willing to believe anything that comes down, that has some residue or some semblance of Christ in it, they're willing to believe it. They're willing to take it into their minds and they're willing to believe and trust in it. And they're so open-minded that they're not constrained by the truth. They're not constrained by the teachings of Paul. And so they have let all of these other ideas, all these other teachings into their minds and they've begun to believe them. And it's actually drawn them away from the sufficiency and centrality of Christ. They were very open-minded. In a sense, these Galatians were the rocky soil of Matthew 13 that Jesus talks about. There was a seed of truth planted, and where there was once a momentary sort of glimpse of life, it was quickly burnt, quickly withered in the scorching sun of false teaching. They had no roots. They had no roots to maintain any growth. And so he says, I am so astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace, in the grace of Christ, and are turning to a different gospel. This idea of deserting means really to transpose or to transfer or to place in put in place of another. In other words, they were taking this counterfeit gospel, this different gospel that was adding things to Christ, and they were taking that and receiving that, and they were replacing the true gospel that Paul had given them, the gospel of faith, the gospel of being justified by faith, the, the, the gospel of not having to work towards your salvation, but it is through Christ and the sufficiency of Christ alone that you have received by faith. And so he says, you have turned, you have switched parties, you have changed your allegiance, you are now adorning a turncoat, you have swapped sides. They didn't just abandon the gospel that, that Paul had given them for nothing. They didn't just go from believing in Christ to not believing, in their mind. They believed, and they, they, they thought that these teachings that were being added to Christ helped them understand and gain a greater knowledge of him. And so they received them. But they had moved. They had departed from sound teaching. And the departing from sound teaching always leads to apostasy. 
it always leads to a turning away. And that is exactly what the Galatians were doing. They were deserting Christ. They were deserting Christ, and so they were deserting Christ, and they were deserting the grace of Christ. Paul says here that he, you are deserting the one who has called you into the grace of Christ. So not only are you deserting Christ, you're deserting the grace that you've been called into. And here is the, the most essential doctrine, the most essential truth that we see scattered throughout this letter. This is the, the basis for which Paul makes his every argument on. It is the grace of Christ that is the thread that links everything together in this, in this book. He says, you have abandoned this grace. You have abandoned this teaching. And it's this teaching of grace that permeates the whole letter. It serves as the foundational basis from which he will bring this strong rebuke to the Galatian churches. The Galatians were called by grace, yet they had turned aside from his grace and had embraced an allegiance to their own work as a way of the salvation. They have abandoned their justification by faith through grace and his death and have now depreciated that grace by insisting on and relying on their own work as a way to merit favor with God. They had truly turned from the gospel that was given to them to a different gospel a gospel that added things on to Christ, a gospel of Christ plus. And so then he moves on and begins to talk about this distorted gospel a little bit more. Uh, you see here that this word gospel that Paul is using is this word uangelion. It is, means good tidings. It means to proclaim and preach the good news in the action sense. It is this idea where we get the word evangel from the one who brings the good news, the messenger of good tidings. And specifically, this idea of euangelion means that the, it is essentially the good news of salvation in God through Christ. That God provides a way to be saved through Christ. And the true gospel becomes a different gospel when it becomes a distorted gospel, which renders it no gospel at all. He said that this gospel you have turned to, it is a distorted gospel. Let's, let's read it here in verse 7. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. Distort the gospel of, of Christ. And this idea of distorting is this sense that they want to change it. They want to alter it. And they want to turn to oneself, to turn back on. When you distort something, it's this sense of changing and altering and manipulating it. Changing it from its true form. And that is so often happening today that we have taken the gospel and we have added to it. And we've taken out the difficult things and we have added things to it that make it seem more palatable, more easy for people to, to receive and to understand and to believe in. And Paul's saying this is exactly what's happening in this church, that people are adding to it what does not need to be added. 
And these teachers that came in and added to it, they were, it was characterized by their desire to change and to alter its message. And by changing it and altering it, they completely turned away from it. They completely turned their back on it because they, their desire was to change it, to add to Christ what didn't need to be added. And they turned from the grace. They turned their back on the loving kindness of Christ. The, the role of Christ in the distorted gospel was significant but not central. In other words, it was in many ways easy to receive because it had an element of Christ in it. But Christ was not at the center. He was not sufficient in it. So you can see in a young Christian mind, with little experience, with little teaching, not much to go off of, that it would be easy to receive this because there was an element of Christ in it. But he was not at the center. He was not in the sufficient place that only he should be in. And so that sufficiency was depreciated and distorted as other requirements were added into this gospel. This different, distorted gospel compelled its hearers to place a high premium on their own spiritual performance. Think about this today in the church. Have we done this? I would say yes. We have placed such a high premium on our own spiritual performance. Meanwhile, depreciating the sufficiency of Christ in our lives. The spotlight was no longer on the all-sufficient grace of Christ to save, but on the exalting of one's own sense of spiritual prowess and skill and maturity, thus devaluing what we would consider the immeasurable value of Christ alone to save. It was just the elevation of man at the expense of Christ. Listen to what, what, what uh, John says. The subtlety of this different gospel, it cannot be overstated. It was over and over again referenced by the apostles who were trying to protect the flock, who were trying to keep the church constrained to their teaching. Listen to what John says in his first letter, 1 John 2.19. He says, uh, of these different teachers or that had went out from him, he assembled a group of people and they were learning from John, and then they went out from John with their own teaching. This is what he says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. These people went out from John. They did not continue with John, but they went out from John. And John says, but they went out. And they went out that they might, that they, they went out because they were not of us. And they went out that it might be plain that they all are not of us. So Paul, John is painting a picture here. He's saying there were people with us and they were hearing our teachings and understanding our teachings and they were being taught and trained and brought into the knowledge of Christ and who he was through our teaching. But then they quickly went out from us and they took what they had heard and then they began to mix it with their own knowledge, with their own secret revelation about Christ and they begin to present that as the gospel but he says those people were not of us because if they were of us they would have stayed with us in 1st John 4 1 and verse 6 he says this beloved do not believe every spirit 
or really every person, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and spirit of error. How is it that we know what is true? How is it that we know what a true gospel is? How is it that we know what a true teaching is? How is it that we can trust what we are hearing? It is by one standard. We test it according to the truth. We test it according to the scripture. John says this, that whoever is not from God does not listen to us. And also whoever is not from God will not teach what we teach. Listen to, uh, um, in 1 uh, John, oh, sorry, we're going to get there in a moment. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 15, this is what Paul says. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. He, he warned the church. He said, don't go off into these uncharted territories. Don't go off the map, but be constrained and be hemmed in by our teaching because we are getting personal revelation as apostles. Uh, we are giving you the truth of who Christ is. We are dispensing truth that is, is given to us by the Spirit. And it is all done within the confines of inspiration by God. So if anyone comes to you and teaches you something different than what you have been shown and heard from us, you must reject it. If anyone comes and adds to what we have given you, you must reject it. If anyone takes away from it, in other words, if anyone doesn't preach the whole gospel, even the difficult parts of it, even the parts about repentance and wrath and judgment, and, and, if, and if a gospel is coming, it doesn't call you to repentance. It doesn't call you to turn to God for the forgiveness of your sin. You must reject it. A gospel that just speaks about your brokenness and about how Christ just wants to heal you and help you is no gospel at all. But a gospel that comes and convicts the hearts of men and women to turn to Christ and to, to ask for forgiveness and to repent and to, to display a sense of contrition and humility and honor and reverence for Christ. That is the true gospel. And so he says, you must stick to what was given to you. You must stick to our teaching. This is the true gospel. And then Paul moves on uh, to the standard. He presents a standard. He gives them a real practical understanding and counsel as to what should be received and what should be rejected. He presents the benchmark by which every believer in every church and every follower must adhere to. Paul issues the standard by which every teaching, every revelation, every instruction is measured. Listen to what he says here in verse 8 and 9. He says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What is the standard that Paul is giving? What is the standard that Paul is establishing? It's not Paul. Paul does not even look to himself as the standard. 
The standard is, is not angels or others that come claiming to have the truth. It is not angels. It is not Paul. The standard is not someone simply speaking that's in a church. I am not the standard. What I say, you better test. You better go to the scriptures and confirm it. I am not the standard. Just because someone is speaking on a platform and has the title uh, pastor or teacher, that is not the standard. The standard is not whether someone holds the office of a shepherd or a deacon or a priest. The standard is not the character of a person. That is not the standard. Someone can present a character to someone and have the facade of a good character. And yet deep down inside, they are troubled. They don't understand the truth. They don't love the truth. They dispense knowledge and they masquerade it as truth. But really when it comes down to it, there is no basis in Christ. The sufficiency and centrality of the gospel is not there. It's just simply good advice, man-made wisdom coming from the intellect of men. Don't trust people's character. Don't make the character of people the standard by which you judge everything. The standard is not the gifts of a person, nor the abilities of a person, nor the accomplishments of a person, nor the works of a person, nor the spirituality of a person. But the standard is found in the content of the message, of their message. I don't care how many uh, baby orphanages you open up. I don't care how many people you feed, how many mouths you feed. Those are all wonderful things and we should be doing them as the church. But that is not the standard by which we measure the truth. That is not the standard. Uh, the, someone could be completely wrong in their teaching about the gospel, yet still participate in good works. Jesus said this. He said, uh, those are going to come to me in the last days and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all these works in your name? And Jesus said, away from me, I never knew you. I never knew you. In other words, what did you do with me? What was the fruit of your life? Did you proclaim the truth of who I am? It is possible to do all of these things in the name of Christ, but yet really never know him. Never remain faithful to the gospel. Never remain faithful to the truth. Never present the truthfulness with accuracy of who Christ is and what he's done for us and what we are called into, but what is required of us in order to put our faith in him, which is repentance and turning. This is the standard, is the content of the message. The idea is this, is that when we discern and when we, we test, we test by the truth, and we're not discerning what is right from wrong. We're, we're discerning what is right from almost right. For the Galatians, it wasn't like these false teachings were coming in and completely denying Christ. Christ was in the message. Christ was in the mix. But yet they had added on to it. It was not pure. It was not Christ-sufficient, Christ-satisfying. It was not central. He was not all in all. But his work was added to with requirements and regulations and spiritual performance. So discerning and testing is not simply 
trying to figure out right from wrong. False teaching is often has lots of truth scattered in it, but yet it denies the sufficiency and centrality of Christ when it really comes down to it. So when we discern, it is trying to understand what is right from what is almost right. And for the Galatians, they couldn't tell. They had Christ in there. Hey, sounds good. Let's add that in. But the gospel, here's the truth. The gospel is the touchstone by which everything is examined. It is the gospel. It is the good news. It is the standard by which every teaching, every instruction, every revelation, every prophetic word is weighed. And all must point to it. All must hold it as the, as the zenith, as being paramount to the truth. All that is taught, all that is explained, all that's presented as truth must hold up to the rigorous standards and bear witness to the all-satisfying word of Christ. If Christ and the truthfulness of the gospel found in the cross is not the ground by which everything taught, explained, instructed, proclaimed, and heralded is built upon, then it is a different gospel. Everything must find its grounding in the cross. Everything. Those who proclaim this different gospel have gone beyond what is written. and are considered to be accursed. In other words, they are doomed for destruction. They are without hope of even being redeemed. That's what Paul considers them. Paul considers them accursed. He said, don't pray for them. Don't try to convince them. Don't welcome them into your congregations. Deny them. Their consciences are, are seared, and God has given them up to their own desires. That's some pretty harsh words, but that is exactly what Paul says, that they have gone beyond the teaching of Christ. They've started in the truth, and they've gone well beyond it. They've gone far beyond it. They've gone way out of bounds. They have gone way off the map, and they have added things to Christ, and they have taken away things from Christ. And Paul's saying, a strict adherence to the word of Christ cannot be stressed enough. And in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, he says this, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos, for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. In other words, when you go beyond what is written, when you begin to rely on personal revelation and mystical experiences and adding things to Christ and taking things from him and presenting to people and presenting to the church new truth, new revelation, what ends up happening? You begin to pit one with another, begin to create factions. Why? Because some people want to believe those things and others want to stay uh, adhering to the truth that the, that the, the apostles had given them. He says, be careful. Do not go beyond what is written and do not add to it with your own personal revelations and your personal experiences. He said, you're only going to create strife and factions because one will be puffed up. One will be uh, working and uh, 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 they will be in a sense, relying on their own spiritual pride that they have this special knowledge, this special revelation that is not necessarily what the apostles have been given but needs to be added to it. He says, stay away from that. 
John 14, 22 and 23, this is what Jesus says about his own word. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The words that I inspired through the spirit to men so that you can have the full revelation of who I am and all that I've done. Second John 9 says this, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. In other words, reinforcing what Jesus said, those who do not have God, those who go beyond the teachings of Christ, Christ is not even living in them. There is no home for him in their heart because they have gone beyond the truth. They seek to add to Christ and their consciences are seared and God has given them up in their own rebellion and their own desire to rely on their own spiritual pride and their own spiritual ability. He says, those who go beyond don't even have God. And then finally, he moves on to the approval. He moves from the standard now to the approval. What is, what is Paul's aim? Who is Paul aiming to find and seek approval from? To read it here in verse 10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And Paul, with impeccable clarity, now brings into focus what he seeks in preaching this true gospel. It is not the attention of man is not the acceptance of man. It is not the adoration of man. Most likely, it is the gospel that comes that brings the scorn of man. Paul is, is not after the approval of men. He has no desire to please men with this gospel. The aim of Paul's ministry is not the acceptance of men. The goal of Paul's message is not to find favor with men. On the contrary, the nature of the gospel is one that offends the sensibilities of men. It comes against every preconceived notion man has of itself. It challenges our righteousness, our pride, our sense of self-importance. The true gospel is not pleasing to men. It does not bring pleasure to men because it will not entertain men's desires, men's will, or men's sin. This different gospel was no gospel at all because it elevated man and therefore depreciated Christ by convincing man that by their self-righteous work they could ascend to saving knowledge of God. They could do it on their own. They didn't need Christ. I mean, they had Christ, but there was so much more. There's so much more. I need to have more. I need to have more revelation. I need to have more truth. I need to uh, seek a higher experience and a deeper level. And so we will add to the gospel. We will add to the truth. We will add to it because it is actually the sufficiency of Christ that's just not enough. Finally, in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17, Paul says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us into triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 
For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are the aroma of God when we know Christ, when we, we come into this, this great relationship with Christ, and, and Christ begins to reveal through the Spirit the knowledge of who he is through his word. When we, when we are able to understand and consider the riches of Christ and the knowing of Christ, when we're growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, uh, Paul says that this is an aroma, that wherever we go, people notice it. People smell it. It is the aroma of the knowledge of Christ. It's wherever we go, we're spreading the knowledge of who he is. And he says, for some of them, to one, a fragrance from death to death. In other words, they smell this fragrance. They see and understand this truth, this knowledge of Christ, and it's like death to them. It stinks. It repulses them. But to the other, he says, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of the word of God. In other words, we don't use the God for God, the, the, the gospel of Christ, the word of God for our own benefit. We do not gain personally from it. We do not massage it and manipulate it and present it uh, as a way for personal gain. We do not peddle it. We do not trivialize it. We do not use it for lining our own pockets. But he says, we are men of sincerity. We are men of pure motives. As commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And so this is what we are talking about here. Paul is talking about this gospel that comes and gets perverted and distorted by men and men become peddlers selling the word of god for their own shameful gain and they become uh they become enamored with their own person their own personal benefits that they get out of the gospel and they end up manipulating it and changing it and and adorning it and altering it but really what it comes down to is this, this gospel that has been changed, this gospel that has been presented is no gospel at all. It's no gospel at all. It has no truth in it because Christ is not at the center. The sufficiency of the cross is not at the center. It's become about everything else. It's become about spiritual performance and revelations and, and spiritual levels and, and, and experiencing God in, in deeper ways. It has become so divorced from the truth of Christ that it is no gospel at all. It is Christ plus whatever you want to put in the blank. And Paul said, you are an aroma. If you have the knowledge of Christ, you are an aroma. And it smells like life to some and death to others. But continue, continue to walk in that knowledge and know Christ so that you can be the aroma, the fragrance of God wherever you go. So that people, when they run into you, when they encounter you, they will see Christ and smell the beauty of life that is in Christ. Well, that's all we have for today, guys. Thank you so, so much for joining us. We're so thankful um, uh, for all um, who are able to 
uh, listen and watch um, these teaching videos. Um, we really hope that you stick with us through this series on Galatians as we're going to go through the book uh, over many months. Next week we'll be uh, focusing on the next portion of that letter and uh, we'll be looking at uh, the source of Paul's gospel as he presents it to the Galatians. And so thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll see you next time.